This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, my God. Dun, 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 dun. We're finally here. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> the pièce de résistance, you guys. We are here. It is the final episode of Oh, That's a Thing. And it couldn't even be better because it's Terminator 2. It's Terminator 2. One of the favorite movies of all time for everybody. And not just Joya, but definitely Joya. <laughs> not just Joya, but Jeff had Gravity, I had Terminator 2. It was clear we're like, let's end on that. So I, I appreciate that, but here we are. I'm, I'm so stoked. Written and directed by our favorite director, James Cameron. James Cameron. James Cameron. Let's Just listen to the trailer. True to form. Same make. Same model. Once he was programmed to destroy the future. You don't know what it's like to try to kill one of these things. Now his mission. Get down. Is to protect it. Come with me if you want to live. His loyalty is to a child. Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now. And his enemy. He's a Terminator like you, right? Not like me. Is the deadliest machine ever built. Can it be destroyed? Unknown. This time, there are two. Terminator 2. You just can't go around killing people. Why? Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time, he's back. For good. Trust me. <laughs> Not back for good, good, because he gets thrown in love at the end. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love, what was it? He's dedicated to a child or whatever. Yeah, that's his that was loyalty. an amazing line. <laughs> he does whatever this child says. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, there's there's always elements of watching this movie that it's like the first time every time. But to be perfectly frank, this was probably the first time of watching it where I was like, I had the butterflies at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then like once we got to the second or third chase scene, I was a little bit like, yeah, I guess I guess this is thirty one. Right. Not, you know, it was like it was so weird because that's guys, this was my first theater movie that I ever saw at age oh, five. Really? And then also what moved me to Los Angeles was performing in a stage spoof called Terminator Two spelled T O O. Right. Judgment play and I played John Clay. Yeah. <laughs> Don't just because, gloss over that for yeah, people right, who I haven't know. heard that. It's joke. a judgment play. <laughs> Fucking, yeah, that's copyright for you. Right. Um, but I played John Connor in it, so uh, so many of his lines, like, come on, man, like, duh, it was so, I was like, oh my God. You are the perfect material. John Connor. I saw it when it was running, and it's such a great show. It's related to the Point Break live show that you also do. Yeah. Which I recommend anybody in LA, if you're ever around right. and you see these these live shows, like Point Break Live, <laughs> right. Tom Gun Live, Yeah, go now we're see doing it. a Top Gun spoof. If you guys are ever in LA, check us out. Yeah. But, I mean, it was crazy because, I mean, I wish I was being facetious when I said this was, it was the role of a lifetime but right. it really was like when my brother first told me about the auditions in New York is when I got into it I was like <gasps> he was like you have to be John Connor and I was right. like but but I'm a girl JJ and he's like but I mean he sounds like a girl throughout the <laughs> whole does, movie very much so <laughs> yeah his voice yeah. cracking all over the place oh my god but that's enough about me so we even saw in this trailer some of the fun taglines same make same model new mission new mission of course there's this time he's back for good 
Not, Which, yeah, again, not, not true. Already said, <laughs> get terminated July 3rd. Uh, yeah, right? sure. Yeah. And then <laughs> he said, I'll be back. He was right. He, he was right. <laughs> he was right about that. <laughs> Fucking tagline writers. Yeah. I, I mean, this movie was made on a budget of approximately $100 million, which was the most expensive film ever made up to that point. Right. James Cameron loves breaking his own records. Right. And so, anytime somebody beats that record of most expensive film, he's got to come back and make an Avatar or yeah, something. Yeah, well, which he did on True Lies, Titanic, and Avatar, exactly. all out, <laughs> like, out-budgeted fucking Terminator 2. <laughs> but isn't it crazy to think about, like, Terminator 2 was shot in eight months compared to the first Terminator, which was only six weeks. Well, the first Terminator was shot for six million dollars. Yeah. It's like a low-budget horror movie, totally. and, and then this is a huge-budget action movie. Yeah, which is one great thing where it's like with James Cameron's sequels, both this and Alien Two, yes. or Aliens. Yeah, that movie where the first is more of like a straight horror movie, the second one is more of like an action adventure fun time. Totally, he's really good. Well, at- it was an epic. Yeah, I mean, fuck. Totally. Well, because uh, I was reading that after the release of The Abyss in 1989 or whatever, James Cameron felt that he was ready to start working on this film, but he knew that half of Terminator's rights were owned by the producer of the original movie, some Hemdale person, I don't know. Arnold Schwarzenegger was working on Total Recall with Mario Kassar and Andrew Vanya. He learned about James Cameron wanting to make this movie and was like, y'all need to buy the rights and make this happen. So they ended up buying them in February 1990 and James Cameron started working the following month. Okay. Because that's how he rolls. Yeah. Yeah, like you were saying the final budget was $102 million. This is more than 10 times the budget of the first film. (laughs) It also was the first film to break $300 million at the international box office. It actually outperformed the full gross of the original Terminator after just four days of release. Holy shit. (laughs) Like, this is crazy. And again, you know, I was a five-year-old, so right. I don't really know, but I'm just thinking about like all of the hullabaloo, and I don't know if it was as a result of the trailer or like what was it that got well, people so hyped about it. I think it? that the first one was a hit, and like you can't buy the kind of marketing that a good movie gives for its sequel. Totally. <laughs> so it's just like the excitement surrounding Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was like way less of a known entity back in '84 right. or whenever it was, versus '92, and like right, the marketing machine must have been enormous for the biggest budget movie of all time. Right. And I'm also thinking from like a 1991 audience of seeing right. the T-1000 for the first time, like the liquid metal stuff was mm. was pretty early on in its development. Totally. And so yeah, that, the fact that he's a hero now, like right. a toy yeah, has yeah, all yeah, yeah. of the It's got every piece that trappings. you want. It's funny <laughs> yeah. too, like my memory is the first rated R movie that I ever watched was Terminator 1. Yeah. And it was because when I was five, my mom went to the video store to pick up Terminator 2. They were literally all out of every copy of rental oh, of Terminator man. 2. And I guess the video store guy told her that we, her children, wouldn't understand the movie unless we had seen the first <laughs> Fuck one. Fuck you. Which is not true at all. But Dude, by comparison, the first one blows. I mean, I know that's well, really bad because people say, but it's like, if you see Terminator 2 first, I can understand going back. And right. Like, but be, I would almost prefer just like, get it out of the way. We get it. She explains. Sarah right. Connor does her thing like the machines. The right. But that day. was like my first experience was she came home with Terminator 1 and we were like, oh, but this is awesome too. It is awesome. Yeah. It is awesome also. And eventually um, we saw this and our minds were exploding. Yeah. I read over one million feet of film was shot and printed for this film. Because <laughs> you can, that just makes me think, I read about a ton of deleted scenes and alternate oh, endings yeah. and stuff. I have no idea how crazy it was on the cutting room floor with well, James Cameron. Yeah, beyond the actual extended version, which yeah. also exists with right. a bunch of those scenes where it's like Kyle Reese from the first movies coming right. to talk to her. In, in Pescadero. Right. And then, oh, fucking weird. There's a lot of scenes, actually. Yeah, a ton of those. So I was reading Industrial Light and Magic's computer graphics department had to grow from, that's James Cameron's, stu- or is that uh, that's George, George Lucas's, Lucas's, but yeah. he 
helped with work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So <laughs> they had to grow from six artists to almost thirty-six artists. Oh wow! And add thirty people to accommodate all the work required to create the T one thousand. That's hilarious. In con- contrast to last week's episode, Gravity, with how many artists were working on the CG for that movie, oh, which yeah. like you were saying, like thousands and thousands of people working is like thirty-six people. Yeah. Working on this team sounds like a lot relative to what came right before it. But right. relative to now, it's to like... these days, hell no. But but it, considering it was only to for them their work on the T one thousand, and not for well, any of the oh, other yeah. shit, only to create the like three and a half minutes of screen time that his liquid metal had. But it still took wow. eight months and five and a half million dollars to do. Holy shit! So it's just crazy to put it in perspective that James Cameron really, truly was like this fire starter when it comes to CG. And like I, I have, of course, the extreme DVD bonus yeah, feature yeah. or whatever. And he talking a lot about how. You know, he wanted to use the liquid metal in a very choice kind of way. He didn't Mm. want it to be over the top, especially out of fear of it becoming dated. And like, this is also probably one of the first times watching it where I was like, oh man, it looks like Secret World of Alex Mack. It's a little bit 90s. Whereas before I was like, this will hold up. It withstands the test of of time forever and always. Five or 10 years ago, I was like, this CG looks as good as any metal would look. And now I'm like, nah, it could look better. I know, but I thought that for so long. I I was like, that's the one movie that will. (laughs) It certainly looks way better than other movies that use CG around. That era. It definitely dates better than Edward Furlong's hair. (laughs) That's true. Very 90s. And it's CG technology. Yeah, totally. So Stan Winston and his special effects crew, they studied hours of nuclear test footage in order to make Sarah Connor's like nuclear holocaust nightmare seem real. Yeah, I've read that like nuclear scientists wrote in being like, this is the only actual representation of a nuclear blast the way it actually would be that yeah. we've ever seen in film. Totally. They were saying like, it's the most accurate depiction certainly ever in like a movie. So they basically made up this miniature Los Angeles in order to simulate the scene. And I read mm. that some of the materials they used were like matzah crackers and shredded oh, wheat. You know, that's... like when the kids start to to fall apart oh, like leaves yeah. or whatever. They use matzah crackers. <laughs> and then after each take, it would take on average two days to set it up again. So I I don't know. I'm just, I think about some of the production shit. I'm like the patience and just like all of the time and energy that goes into something like that. Just like blasted wind over it, right? Yeah. Like I I wasn't sure if it was like stop animation or what, but Mm -hmm. like when they start to blow apart and she's screaming and stuff and like holding onto the the fence and whatever, I was like, what are you made of? But shredded wheat. (laughs) (laughs) Now the The most realistic shredded wheat. (laughs) Right, totally. (laughs) So the effect of the T-1000 freezing and breaking up was achieved through prosthetics attached to an amputee. Oh. And then when it's just Robert Patrick, it's him with his limbs like underneath the set. So when he actually breaks and is like, and starts to fall, that was an amputee with prosthetics attached to him. That's fascinating. Fucking interesting, right? For the sounds of the T-1000 like slipping through the, like past the bars at Pescadero or whatever. Right, where he goes through the 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 prison bars. Yeah, 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 exactly. The sound designer, Gary Rydstrom, he essentially, he just inverted an open can of dog food and recorded it as it slowly oozed out. Oh, like yeah, dropping like, a can, like that yeah. schloop. Like, just yeah. recording it. Yeah, and it does then, sound like that. But when the, the T-1000 is just liquidy metal, the sound was spraying dust off into a mixture of flour and water with a condom-sealed microphone submerged in the goo. Okay. <laughs> they put a microphone so, in a condom, dropped it in some goo, yeah. and then hit and then it with, sprayed the, with air? the concoction with dust off, like an electronics cleaner. That's fascinating. It's I so guess weird. that is what it would sound like. Yeah, I know. I guess I should have probably gotten the sound of that. If I do that, it'll be here. Yeah. 
Now, similarly for the sound of bullets hitting the T-1000, inverted glass was slammed into a container of yogurt, which created a, like a combo sound of hard edge and goop. I love how many like everyday noises that you rarely hear, but when you do hear them, the, yeah, like if you just put them in a different context, yeah. then it makes perfect sense. I know. And then I'm mostly just impressed by all of the crazy Foley work because right. even not even just the like gooey sounds or whatever, it's like pretty much every incidental movement on screen is replaced. Like the creaks of the Terminator's leather jacket, his right. buckle clinks, the footsteps, like the entire sequence where Sarah escapes from Pescadero and like uses the paperclip and stuff. And now that I think back on it, I'm like, yeah, those sounds were like extra crisp right but this was all done you know in post essentially like the the weapons were all done in post to make the handgun sound like higher caliber guns oh, and like yeah. that big mega gun at the end they slowed down the sound of that so it was really like because oh. like before it's rapid fire you know when he's in the building right like and when he's all at, the cops and he's like yeah. trying to not kill the cops but kill all their cars yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so that was fucking crazy to think about and then james cameron this is one of those sounds that stuck with me for a really long time after seeing it. The T-1000 screams at the end when he's thrown into the lava. Yeah, it's like that. like, oh, oh, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> apparently that was James Cameron's own screams. Really? That they, you know, obviously like manipulated or whatever in post, but I actually have that sound because it's like, why the fuck not? Yeah. So that's that sound. I love the idea of James in a room going like, <laughs> Yeah. Yuck, <laughs> well, and especially because in our show, Terminator 2, it was like, that was us at the end. I was I was telling the T-1000 guy, I was like, you gotta be like screaming, but it's like you're sucking in. It's right, like, yeah. It's that scream when you're breathing in that. Yeah. <laughs> makes me immediately cough. I know. I can't believe I just did it without coughing. <laughs> Every impressed. time I've tried it, I usually end up in like a hacking nightmare. And just was, now I was able to pull it off. I, I have was, no explanation for that. It's final show, man. Yeah, you had to have it right. <laughs> the, the gods are on our side. Yeah. The metallic beats of the Terminator theme is not created by a synthesizer. It's Brad Fidel who did the score, striking one of his cast iron frying pans. Really? Yeah. That's that. That's this sound. Oh yeah, and there's that. There's getting <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what like so much? I, it's a cast iron pan. Yeah, like I'm sure that. there's more because I totally always thought it was synthesizer. There's definitely yeah. Sith for the ooh, yeah. but then just frying pan. And then okay, this is this is just me speaking of awesome soundtrack stuff. Guns N' Roses did the soundtrack music from this called "You Could Be Mine." That's the music that's played when John Connor and his and Bobby Budnick go riding off. Oh yeah, <laughs> Bobby Budnick from "Salute Your Shorts," the redhead. I'm going to play a little bit of that because why not? And while we're at it, why don't we play a little bit of Salute Your Shorts theme song? Yeah, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> we run, we jump, we swim and play. Yeah, fucking camp on Awana. Get it right I or wanna... pay the price. <laughs> oh, ugly. Okay, casting notes. This oh, is shit. fun to think about. Of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger was always going to be the Terminator because mm. that's 
nonsense. But it is the sequel. Yeah, yeah. And I know he at first was unsure about the Terminator not being able to kill anybody, mm. but then his, you know, his fears were relieved once he learned that it was still going to be rated R. And it's like, don't worry, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of violence. But I can understand if he's like the straight up bad guy to then be like, but I'm a good guy right. and I can't But he's working anybody. with James Cameron. Like, I think we've talked about that story where Sigourney Weaver wanted to have her character never shoot a gun in Alien 2. Oh, yeah. And he sat her down and was like, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to be shooting guns in my movie. Right. You know. Well, and it makes sense, obviously, with the thematic elements of John Connor being the one, you know, teaching yeah. him how to be yeah. human and all that. But, you know, when you're just being like, wait, wait. this guy whose like, whole thing was that he terminated the people. The Terminator <laughs> isn't going to terminate? Yeah. It's yeah. fucking weird. Michael Bean was the first choice to play the T-1000, oh, which that, that's oh Kyle Reese God, in That the actually would have been really interesting. Yeah, because the whole idea was that it's a complete reversal of right. roles with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's now the, the hero, but they deemed that, the studio, I guess, deemed it too confusing for viewers, but mm. they ended up doing that later, right, in the Genesis or whatever. It's like John Connors and the bad guy or some shit. I'm like, sure, I can't, yeah, like, I whatever with those later it. ones. <laughs> yeah. But. Also, James Cameron wanted Billy Idol to play the T-1000. Really? <laughs> like, Rock the Cradle of Love, White Wedding. Billy <laughs> but apparently a motorcycle accident prevented him from taking on the role from getting on that motorcycle yeah fuck, <laughs> I know which is just crazy because you're like but the T-1000 rides the motorcycle all the time exactly like act. I guess Robert Patrick was cast after James Cameron saw him in Die Hard 2 which I don't remember I don't remember Die Hard 2 do you? that's like the forgotten Die Hard I- took place at like an airport Oh, okay, okay. If you remember at God, all. I, vaguely, but... But people remember Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 3. I love Robert Patrick, though. I He apparently mimicked the head movements of an American bald eagle, which makes sense, because he's like, mm-hmm. do you know this boy? Yeah. That's me doing American eagle head movements, Where they move suddenly and quickly to the side. Wicked five-year-old crush on Robert Patrick for a while. It was like him and John Connor. I was like, which one? Which yeah. one do I choose? But I don't know. He's running. He was a great runner. Both of them. He did were. a lot of fucking training to be able to run without showing any kind of exhaustion. Apparently, you know. Oh, that makes sense. Because yeah, when he's sprinting after them, it's so yeah. precise His and so. His face like, doesn't change. Mm-hmm. It's very Tom Cruise runny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Linda Hamilton, of course, trained with a former Israeli commando, as well as a personal trainer for three hours a day, six days a week for 13 weeks before filming, which is no wonder because her arms and her buys and tries and delts. <laughs> she looks amazing and ripped in this movie. And like, yeah, it's crazy in the first Terminator. She looks like a very like feminine, soft yeah. kind of, you know, waitress. She's, yeah, she's a mom. In it. Yeah. yeah. And very just like, ah, docile. And here's the thing, like I often go back and forth. This is a side dive, but I always thought that Sarah Connor is like one of the best heroines, right? She's like mm-hmm. a female hero. That's what heroin means. <laughs> but I mean, the, the fact that it's like, yes, she's a badass and she can kick ass, but at the end of the day, she is a mother. She's right. doing all of this because she's trying to protect her son mm-hmm. as well as like humanity. Like there's her whole discussion with Miles Dyson about like, you men don't, you've never had life grow inside you. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's something that I think James Cameron plays a lot with and he has his own ideas about like what makes a strong woman, which you, you can argue with. I mean, mm-hmm. female like grace and like feminine bodies are not right. not badass necessarily but I just appreciate that like she can kick some serious well, he's ass he's married a couple of women who have like kind of the vibes of this character yes, the Sarah yeah. Connor character totally like they're very strong women who are producers or directors they're also like both like tall and thin and like yeah. kind of like very Linda Hamilton Catherine Bigelow and Linda Hamilton definitely have some right? similarities like yeah <laughs> right? but yeah fucking Linda Hamilton she ended up learning these like military techniques she learned how to pick locks she learned how to cock that fucking shotgun with one hand. That's great. 
And because yeah, we, of oh that big the, like movement, end, yeah, yeah, her oh, arms all so fucked great. up. But she, I remember reading that she was like, "I can do it again if you want." <laughs> <laughs> but I guess because of how intense the regimen was for her, she declined to reprise her role in Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines. It was just, you know she's getting older. That was it. Yeah, that's because what I. That's what it said. Interesting. In IMDb, but. I recently saw some first looks of the now upcoming Terminator Sixth that movie, yeah. which is apparently supposed to be like, let's undo any of the subsequent ones after Terminator 2. And this one is just supposed to be the sequel to Terminator 2, like right. to complete the trilogy. James Cameron's not directing, but he is producing it. And right. at least like the photo that I saw of Linda Hamilton, like she's old, but she looks like a badass. She looks awesome. Yeah. yeah. And it is funny, though, just like that's never really been done before that you reboot back to the th- third of yeah, a movie like, these like were mistakes like just make a sequel to terminator 2 again mm-hmm. is not something that's ever been done before because i just i really think that well i hated three but right. i i saw that they were trying to kind of recreate more of yeah. what would have been a follow-up but it's like you kind of get james in there you, you gotta, gotta get, get linda james. you gotta yeah yeah also, the scene at the end where there's two Sarah Connors, they used Linda Hamilton's twin sister, Leslie, right. which is why she's got like not ripped arms and she oh, just looks like a normal. I didn't even notice that. That's <laughs> great. Luckily, it's only that one scene. It's, yeah. it's just sort of like, John, I'm weak. I know they used her in a couple of other scenes, including a deleted scene yeah, where she's, like in, she's like in the mirror and instead of it being a mirror, it's like a whole other room and there's like a, yeah. a you know, so it was hard to shoot, but they still cut it from the movie. I think is wise. I mean, and, it's already a long movie, but and I, I think it's her the sister in the nuclear explosion when it's like she's oh, seeing herself playing with the child. Right. And I think that's actually Linda Hamilton's child. Right. Uh, one oh, of fascinating. The, maybe the sister's child. One of their children. And she's dressed more like Sarah Connor from the, from first, the first movie. One, like right. the stupid 80s dress. Yeah. And, and it makes more sense. I was always like, wow, her arms aren't that ripped in that shot. But yeah. oh my God. <laughs> it makes sense. No Israeli commandos for you, Leslie. This is the film debut of Edward Furlong. <laughs> Sorry. It's hilarious, yes. The debut. I mean, so, he, he didn't do the greatest performance of all time. He didn't, and yet, like, you can understand, because the casting director, Molly Finn, or whatever, she'd been looking for a quote-unquote streetwise kid, but none of the kids that were brought into her fit the bill. Mm-hmm. And so she ended up widening her search to the Boys Club of Pasadena, where she found him. And I oh. guess, you know, he had that, like, right amount of angst and attitude mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think he kind of, like, sucked balls in some of his auditions. Like, because then I whew, got into the YouTube rabbit hole of then watching an interview with Eddie Furlong now talking about it. And oh, I was really? like, because he did not age gracefully no. at all. So, like, hearing him talk about it, like, yeah, I really screwed it up the first time. And they originally didn't want me. But then, I guess, you know, they just saw something in him when he got serious. Well, it, it worked out in the end. I love We all love this. that performance, even though it's kind of, like, totally hammy it's totally hammy now because he's like he's literally wearing a public enemy shirt and right. like camo yeah. he has like the most <laughs> 1992 hair in the world a dirt bike he's got his like atari pro notebook or whatever right. the, the atm easy money like there's a lot to laugh about but and if they come at you you say eat me yeah hasta la vista baby i mean that was the craziest is because his fucking voice started i mean he was clearly aging as they mm. were making this so they had to in post adjust his pitch because it was all over the map because he started becoming a man what a pain in the ass but the only part where they still kept the young John Connor voice is when they're in the desert and he's like teaching him how to be human and right. teaching him why do you cry and stuff like I don't know it's just like when you feel or whatever <laughs> yeah. you know we're not gonna make it are we and like yeah. those are the parts that I I love like people made fun of him because his voice was so like when he screams it's just like ah! 
Yeah, but he's a kid. Like, that's what kid. kids scream like. Like, boys' voices gr- break when yeah. they're 13 or whatever. I actually tried to find a compilation of John Connor screams on YouTube. I, <laughs> I really thought that somebody had done it, but they hadn't and so if i do insert that it's going to be me taking a scene and then cutting it up myself so if i do that that'll be here and then you can put that compilation on youtube for the world (laughs) you can be the one to do it definitely definitely oh this is my last point the world famous phrase hasta la vista baby is translated to sayonara baby in the spanish version so that the humorous <laughs> tone is kept. Because <laughs> if you said hasta la vista, maybe they'd, they'd be, like, be like, oh, um. yeah, see you until the next time. <laughs> which, which is what it literally means is like, until the next time. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> why did he say that so serious? Why yeah. was that like one of those dramatic lines? But then it made me think of like other ways that you could do just like, ciao for now, baby. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, this movie's got a bunch of Terminators in it. Let's talk about some war machines. Okay. We've mentioned before on the show, and people probably have heard of Boston Dynamics, which was bought by Google a few years ago and has been building machines that look remarkably like the Terminator or like machine dogs that are definitely going to kill us all. That's what I see people freaking out about a lot, is like the dog machines that can open doors and shit. Right. Well, that's the thing is like they have a new model that just like in the Raptors of Jurassic Park, they can open doors. Yeah. But they're still working out how to get like a humanoid robot to walk on any terrain and get past any obstacle that a normal human being can. It's kind of amazing how well our bodies are built for getting almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like they're weirdly versatile. Like the human hand, it's, it can pick up anything. Right, right. We talked about that. Right. Puzzle so thumbs and shit. There are good reasons to make a humanoid style robot, and we're close. We've come a long way, but like we still aren't quite there where. You know, they still fall over a lot. Right, right, right. You know, but we are really, really close. This is like, it looks like the exoskeleton or that like metal yeah. version of the Terminator. Like, listen to me very carefully. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, When exactly. he cuts his arm off. <laughs> or, yeah, when, the robotic arm is yeah. where we're at. Right, right. No living tissue over metal yeah. endoskeleton. <laughs> yeah. I saw a great quote from somebody who said about Boston Dynamics, For like eight years, I've been watching videos of Boston Dynamics perfecting dog-shaped future killing machines, and it's always framed like I'm supposed to applaud that it learned to hunt me a little better this month. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yahoo! Yeah, and I find that funny because it's like, you know, there it really is this weird, terrifying piece of technology, but also potentially amazing uses. That's fucking this entire show, isn't it? Where we're like, guys, learn from the, like... Exactly. Are we really setting up these machines to kill us? Right. Perhaps. Well, I'm going to talk about that later where it's like the invention isn't the problem. It's the knowledge of we can use every new invention for both good and bad. Right. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. So related to all of this, we haven't really talked about drone warfare before. Right. Which is basically how the machines fight with us in the future in the movie. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to look at where things were. I read a headline that said the future of warfare is just drones strapped with machine guns. (sighs) Okay. Like the drones that were available 15 years ago when we first started hearing about them were these giant airplanes that basically flew on their own, could spy on people from above and send down missiles. Mm -hmm. By the way, the first Predator drone that we ever used in warfare was only in 2002. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's pretty fucking recent. Yeah. And it was targeting where we thought Bin Laden was. Yes. (laughs) He was. Didn't get him for another nine years. So now we've got a million of these tiny drones flying around state parks and shit. Like, you can buy them in every any corner store. I have a couple of friends who have them, and they're cool, but it's like, right. everybody's got drones. Well, that's the thing. It's not hard to stick a camera and a gun on it and right. weaponize it. Mm-hmm. So there's a new drone called Tikad, or Tikad. 
T-I-K-A-D. <laughs> Perfect. Ticad. The Ticad drone from a Florida startup called Duke Robotics. And soldiers basically pilot it towards something that they want to shoot and remotely fire on it. And it works effectively the same as a giant airplane does, but it's used much more precisely and by somebody who's like on the ground in the combat area. Understood. Okay. So you would be able to like send this out. You would like be behind a wall and you could send this over around the wall and start shooting at the people that you can't see. I see. Okay. But the thing is in war, of course, drones make sense because no side really wants to risk losing people. Mm-hmm. One direction we might go is that both sides get drones and wars start playing out as destruction of each other's autonomous systems without any real human beings getting hurt. I see. And which that's like a weird it's like kind so of video gamey right? in its own way of yeah. We're all just like like it's just assets yeah. that are getting destroyed and we've like removed humans from the dying in war. Which I like, but I'm like at the end of the day just whip your dicks out right. like stop <laughs> yes, like it's yeah. because it's still the same concept of being like oh competition right. must dominate blah 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 right but a more likely direction for this technology to go in would be off the battlefield and into policing so in 2016, the Dallas police force used a remote-controlled bomb-diffusing robot to kill a sniper that was shooting in the streets. And when that happened, a lot of people were freaked out because it's like an autonomous vehicle that killed, you know, somebody in America on the streets. Yeah. But then the kind of response to the freakout was, oh, this is the discussion we're going to be having in five years about police drones. Absolutely. So in, in Minority Report, they have those little spider drones that yeah. they let go run around, but there's no reason not to have those little spiders flying. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, to me, I think this is interesting because there's two different conversations. It's like the the moral conversation of like, is it cool to just have these unmanned drones that like someone else is able to just push a button? Like that right. was always the argument that I heard of, mm-hmm. of like the lack of, I guess, accountability or lack of a better right, term right. for the warfare aspect. But then the second level is the surveillance, which mm-hmm. is I think on the Minority Report episode we talked a lot about of like people are freaked out by just seeing a drone outside their window right. or whatever, of just being like, what are you doing? Right. Not even thinking that they could be equipped with weapons necessarily. Exactly. Ugh. And they probably will be in the future. Right. And it's not even like the concerns about governments using this kind of stuff like us or Russia and we and Russia have different views on how autonomous these robots should be Mm -hmm. but it's the non-state actors whether it's like little terrorist groups or something like that that can get their hands on a dji drone from their local store and strap something to it and get it to go anywhere right the free flow of data has some negative consequences so when it comes to autonomous warfare it's worth kind of considering that the machine gun itself is an automated device. Mm-hmm. It only automated the firing and reloading of a rifle, but it was like a step in this chain that leads towards guns that can do more and more stuff on their own. Right. Richard Gatling, the inventor of the Gatling gun, uh, yes. he believed when he invented it that it would save lives. What does that look like again? It's what like one of those like hand crank things where right. it's like... Pfft, Gotcha. It was like the first real machine gun, but yeah. it was like you did it by hand. And like all the the, the shells, the shells go, flying. go flying exactly. And he thought that it would save lives, hmm. which is a weird and contradictory thing considering what it is. He thought that a gun that fired automatically would mean fewer soldiers on the battlefield and therefore fewer deaths. I see. But that didn't turn out to be true because we kept the same number of men but gave them all machine guns. Right. So it's just everybody's getting riddled with bullets. Right. It was like we didn't reduce the number of people on the battlefield at all. We just made them way more efficient at killing. Mm Mm-hmm. These days, the U.S. Navy has a thing called the Aegis Combat System, Mm -hmm. which is used on ships to defend against, like, precision-guided missiles. 
the missile defense system, which is what the Aegis combat system is, works faster than any human being can. So it does work autonomously. But the incoming missiles themselves are an autonomous weapon system. So you end up with autonomous weapons being built in response to other autonomous weapons. And that thing I described where we just have machines doing all the fighting for us has kind of started. Yeah. It's just like they're aiming at real people and then an anti-missile you know, missile right, thing. blocks you. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you, what do you. What do you think about that? <sighs> Is this one of those like steps... You know, we talk about like short-term pessimism, long-term optimism. Like, right. is this one of those like half steps where we're like, well, we haven't overcome our like desire to have war and right. to fight with each other. Well, thinking about like autonomous weapons versus autonomous weapons, like with the way that Richard Gatling got it wrong in terms of thinking that that would mean fewer human beings being involved and getting killed, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be the opposite. And you keep the same number of people involved but right. also the ability to cause death increases. Now it's not even just, you know, the teams fighting each other. It's like mm-hmm. everybody on the peripheral that's just like caught in the crossfire. Well, yeah, because right now the United States is really adamant that we're going to keep a human being in the loop to make lethal decisions. Right, right, right. But we don't hear that from other countries like Russia who are building mini tanks for the front lines of warfare. They aren't really talking about always keeping a human being in the loop. Right, okay. And there is no international consensus on any of this. Mm -hmm. But I saw this quote that said, autonomy and intelligence are not the same thing. No. And that brings me back to this general belief I have that the robot uprising, if it does happen, won't be like in most movies where the robots decide to kill all humans. Yeah. It'll be more like an autonomous robot, not intelligent robot, will kill all humans accidentally Mm. or just in the process of the pursuit of its goal. Right. That was very similar to the RoboCop episode we talked about. Exactly. It's like, oh, God forbid there's a fucking glitch. But what if they were like really programmed to do it? They're just going to do their job. Well, that's the scary and safe thing about autonomy. Like it does the thing on its own, but only the task that you give it. Mm -hmm. But like Isaac Asimov thought, what if the task is to help save humanity? And in the process, the machine realizes in order to save humanity, I have to kill most humans right Ooh, that's interesting so yeah we got to start from scratch at some point yeah i see i see that with all these ai things it's not so much will they become sentient and decide to kill us for enslaving them it's just they're gonna do the things we told them to do regardless of whether or not that hurts us yeah it's like you want to you want human beings to survive it's like well we got to cut out the cancer we got there's limited resources there's too many of y'all maybe Mm -hmm. we need to eliminate some of the population and go back to you know oh man that's interesting (laughs) that's interesting so we're on the verge of all that yeah it's great (laughs) thanks t2 All right, so so much about what makes this movie so special is that it's, you know, sometimes a little buddy comedy between the Terminator and uh, John Connor, but... (laughs) And, you know, and so much of it is about John Connor teaching him what it is to be human mm-hmm. so he doesn't look like such a dork all the time. Right, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> the Terminator asks him, what is pain and why do you cry? And yeah. I wanted to look into that. What is pain? That's a good question. Right? I, it's, it's such a part of my life or, it, you know, yeah. it's part of all of our lives. And yet I'm like, what the fuck is it? And why does it, what do we think about and it? And we've learned on this show that emotional pain can sometimes manifest as physical pain. Hell yeah. With the electrical impulses that are in your brain. And because it is all in the fucking brain, it's like, maybe our feelings about pain are, there's too much rhyming. Yeah. I just got to get into it. It's like brain, <laughs> the pain, and the gain, whatever. There's so, a lot of gain. <laughs> yeah. 
For most of the history of medical science, pain was believed to work more or less in the way the French philosopher René Descartes described it, a simple signaling system. So the flesh is wounded, i.e. flesh wound, Mm -hmm. and then nerves send a message to the brain about the damage, and then the intensity of the message is directly proportionate to the severity of the injury. Okay. Now, based on this model, many healthcare professionals still believe that the nerve is quote-unquote sending pain, and they therefore call these nerves pain fibers, and their messages are called pain messages. Okay. But I was reading this awesome fucking article it's on painscience.com and it's this really extensive like a ton of different work was put into it but i kind of boiled down my favorite points even microscopic worms with only two trouble detecting nerves compared to our billions of nerves have richer pain experiences than that it's Mm. not as simple as just tissue damage bad good blah 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 he's basically saying a nerve should never be called a quote-unquote pain nerve it doesn't detect pain it only detects some kind of stimulus in the tissue and then the brain decides what to make of it how to feel about it and what to do about it if anything in order to do that our tricky little brains draw on every piece of credible information previous exposure cultural influences knowledge other sensory cues the list is endless this is why you don't make a big deal out of a kid skinning his knee because right. then he'll be like oh that is a big deal and it hurts that much you're so right yeah oh, absolutely man. because the brain also sends messages downwards that actually affect the sensitivity and behavior of the nerves huh. it's basically this conversation or debate between the central and peripheral nerve system so like acute pain let's even say if you skin your knee or you know you break a bone or something like that, it usually just correlates with some kind of tissue damage. But as the pain gets more chronic, the relationship gets messier. So chronic pain without obvious tissue damage is a systemic malfunction in which the nervous system produces more pain experience that is out of proportion to actual tissue trouble, sometimes dramatically so. But he's not trying to say that like pain is all in your head and it's all right. like you're all just imagining it. But he is saying that the brain can tell nerves how sensitive to be. So like if you're anxious, the brain might request more information from the peripheral nerves, which makes them produce more signals in response to smaller stimuli. Hypochondria is an extreme version of this when literally the pain is all in your head. But it's an anxiety disorder that makes you feel like everything hurts. And and when you're like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. But your brain is actually telling your nerves to be more sensitive to these things. Yeah, because you're anxious, which is already a mental disorder, Mm -hmm. your brain's requesting so much more information and that like you're overstimulated essentially. But the brain might actually do the exact opposite. There's extensive recent evidence that the peripheral nerves can physically, chemically change tissue conditions, perhaps in response to brain requests. So again... Mind-body connection. I know! That's what's nuts. And it makes so much sense, again, being like a yoga junkie Mm -hmm. that I'm just like, fuck yeah, the big brain is so... (laughs) Again, I'm not trying to say that, you know, all pain is just a perception and it's not real. It's just a way to reassure people that the danger implied by that pain might be exaggerated based on a number of different things. Even as we were talking about in the Matrix episode recently, like our perception is reality. And so to say that the pain isn't real because it's just in your head is to misunderstand what real is. Oh yeah, totally. Well, here's an example. There was this famous paper about wounded soldiers in World War II that showed that the soldiers experienced surprisingly little pain Considering the severity of their injuries, but this was after they were like off the battlefield. Okay. So it suggests that they automatically were like, yeah, it's not as bad because they knew that they weren't in this like hyper stress situation of right. being back on the battlefield. So ever since then, this is fucking World War II times, 
researchers have been trying to understand this this connection. So well, cuz there's yeah. I know that there are circumstances where like somebody may be in danger and then their leg gets crushed or something in the process of still being yeah. in danger and their brain basically is like don't even worry about that pain yet. Yeah. Like we got to get out of here first before I'm even going to tell this to hurt. I think yeah that's where they say like the adrenaline just mm-hmm. kicked in. I didn't right. even realize that I'd lost a limb, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So pain is essentially a motivator. You know, they always say like pain tells you you're alive. But right. it's like there's more to it than that. It basically gets you to act. Like when you hurt, mm-hmm. your brain is recognizing that we have to do something differently. Mm-hmm. So here are some potential cures oh. or something that can help you. Yep. This is nice. Apparently, thanks to a 2014 study, science has confirmed that being in love relieves pain. Oh. Pain is also muted when romantic partners hold hands. There's something that seems kind of obvious. There's like demagnification because like, let's say your hand is all crushed up. If you hold it under a magnifying glass, it's going to look more swollen. Mm -hmm. But if you demagnify it, it's not going to look as bad. Think about the last time you got a shot. I just got a shot like last month. Uh And I remember being like, oh God, I'm terrified of needles. I just looked away and I didn't even know. You didn't even know that it happened. So it's saying that too. It's like getting, you know, it's an out of sight, out of mind Mm -hmm. scenario. Out of sight, out of body. Yeah, totally. So I read about this scientific test published in 2013 that discusses classification based cognitive functional therapy, otherwise known as CFT. And this is a mind body approach to understanding and managing low back pain that quote unquote targets the beliefs, fears, and associated behaviors of patients. This is sometimes called the confidence cure. So the idea is that the cycle of pain and disability can be broken by easing patient fears and anxieties and specifically reframing the person's understanding of their back pain in a more person-centered manner with an emphasis on changing maladaptive movement, cognitive and lifestyle behaviors that contribute to this cycle of pain. It's essentially just like anything that restores confidence in your life, like kind of just like... Of course, if you're like, I type all the time on the computer, my, right. you know, that kind of stuff. But also, like, if you create new social contexts by doing something like playing a team sport, uh-huh. they talk about, like, because it's like this idea that because other people are counting on you, even something as painful as, like, extensive exercise or something like that, your brain doesn't register as much because you're so uh-huh. focused on the other people and them relying on you. So there's also this relation to, like, how our consciousness involves other people in it. And it totally makes sense to me on in like an intuitive sense because like so many people in America, let alone the world, suffer from really chronic issues like chronic pain, chronic mm-hmm. back ailments, fibromyalgia or whatever. And so it's just crazy to think about like the brain can be more and more sensitive and determine pain as being more of a danger to you. Or if you have like a happy brain, right. it can relieve some of that pain. Well, it's funny how like even emotional pain, as we've talked about, is all tied up in this. And when I think about, like, if I'm generally in a kind of depressed state, like, if I've been watching too many of a depressing show and not, like, watching a comedy and, like, your brain kind of gets into this pattern where when something bad happens, you're so much more ready to be like, oh, isn't that the worst? Totally. Rather than when something bad happens and you're in a generally happy state of life and you're like, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. I'll yeah. deal with that, you know. Yeah. And, be over. and I definitely think of that when it comes to like depressives or, you know, people that they suffer from anxiety or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's not as simple as just being like, come on, the glass is half full. Right. Like, I'm no, not trying not. to undermine it, no, but no. I had never, because I haven't really suffered from chronic pain, like mm-hmm. I had never made that connection that, not that it's all in your head, but like there's clearly a conversation happening here. Mm-hmm. If there's no discernible tissue damage, you've had all the scans and the who's it's and what's it's, but you still have this issue, it might be worth figuring out like maybe your brain is needs to reprocess some shit. Yeah, back when I worked on an ambulance when I was an EMT, 
I remember that we had these things called frequent flyers, is mm-hmm. what they were called, mm-hmm. where people would call 911 all the time. And there were different types of them. Like, there were the people who were legitimately on the verge of death, and so they were constantly having emergencies. But then there were the people who called 911 at the drop of a hat. Yeah. And I wonder, now that you're talking about this, if they've created a scenario where they are physically more sensitive to all the different pain inputs. Totally. Because that they, they want this to wind up happening, and so your brain is, like, creating the scenario. I have a friend in my life who I I wouldn't necessarily consider her a hypochondriac because like she has, I mean, there's things that she's suffered from, but I think about some of the attitudes and I'm like, yeah, that strikes me as somebody that has not done this kind of CFT Mm -hmm, kind of, mm -hmm. or at least like trying to reframe her injuries in a real world context or whatever. Yeah. They talk about how you can alter your physiology with deep, vigorous breathing, Mm. which like creates new feelings and like your brain will kind of go along and re-experience that pain. This is again where my my yoga ideas come in. I Mm -hmm. think about like when women are giving birth, it's like deep breathing. Like you go to Lama's class. The, The reason why I'm such a yoga proponent is because I have seen how that's affected the way that Mm. I deal with conflict in my life. It's not just the physical discomfort. It's like emotional discomfort that I face all the time, whether it's difficult people or difficult situations or like crippling self-doubt, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's like being able to breathe through those feelings of discomfort. I don't know why it's so like gee whiz, but it is a gee whiz for me. Well, like I'm just thinking of two things related to my own breathing. For one, I've had like some stomach problems over the years where when I know that like I'm in severe pain and I know it will pass, you take these slow, deep breaths and you kind of meditate a little bit. You go like this, you remind yourself that this is a temporary thing and that the pain will be over soon. You just breathe through it and it way lessens it. I'm also thinking about how when I was in a relationship and the relationship started to go badly, I remember my ex-girlfriend constantly asking me, why do you take deep breaths all the time? Interesting. She like notices <laughs> she you noticed try to like yield like, to breathe your way I was through. Like, try, yeah, I was like, as like circumstances would come up yeah. that I wasn't feeling like totally comfortable with, just, I would uh, take a slow, not even yeah, like not that, just, but yeah. just like a, like yeah. a, just a deep breath. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like I was sighing all the time. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm just trying to like... Stay yeah. calm. I yeah. don't know. Well, they always say like if you're in the in some kind of crazy fight or whatever, it's like take a breath, count right. to ten. Exactly. You know all of these things. And so that's my biggest pull is not that it's all in your head, so you're full of shit if you have some kind right. of chronic condition. But right. it's just really emphasizing how much your brain has control over what your body feels and yeah. what it does. So similarly, I wanted to discover. Why do we cry? Oh, why do we cry? (laughs) I cry all the fucking time. And I think before it used to be because I was sad all the time. But now, dude, I like give me an adorable like odd couple animal video. Mm. Give me some soldiers (laughs) returning home and surprising their families. Like I will. And I love it. It feels like I love being reminded of humanity and Uh, making it making me cry. I was crying at Cloud Atlas for exactly that reason. Yes, you were. Well, like, what's the evolutionary reason yeah. for this? Let's John talk Connor about it. says we cry when it hurts, but yeah. not just in a painful way. No, we've already discovered there's emotional pain, man. Yeah, right. he's like, you know, when like stuff isn't going your way. Right. <laughs> but also when stuff is going your way. Yeah. Like that's the crazy thing about crying. When it's, yeah, I know. There's so many different types. Okay, so 
uh, scientifically speaking, crying can be defined as the shedding of your tears in response to an emotional state. This is different from lacrimation, which is the non-emotional shedding of tears. Think okay. of like onions. Right. Shit. Yeah. Okay. This is all part of the lacrimal system. I think I'm saying that right, but but this is what sits next to your eyes. So it's both like a, a like secretory, like it secretes secretory. <laughs> it's, it's a, not it's secret. a secretary system. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, it's a secretory system that produces your tears and also an excretory system that drains them. Okay. So when a tear is produced from that gland that sits in between your eyeball and eyelid, you spontaneously blink, which spreads the, the tear over your eye like a film. Mm-hmm. It can either drain off down the lacrimal punctum like a sink plug in the kitchen. Oh. Which is subsequently, it drains through your nose, which is why your nose runs when you cry. Oh. But if you're really sobbing, which is what I do, <laughs> your drainage system simply cannot deal with the volume of tears, mm. which is why it cascades down your cheeks. <laughs> But this is the coolest part, is the fact that your body doesn't make just one type of tear. You actually make three. There's basal, reflex, and psychic tears. The basal tears are like the worker tears. They just keep your cornea nourished and lubricated so your eyes don't dry out. The reflex tears help you wash out any irritations like vapors from an onion or Mm -hmm. dust or whatever. And then there's the psychic or crying tears. This is in response to stress, pleasure, anger, sadness, even physical pain. They actually contain a natural painkiller called leucine enkephalin which is part of the reason why you feel better after a good cry. Wow. I'm like, I've been right. I'm right. I well, always I, feel better. Everybody I have a feels headache, better but after I feel a good better. cry. Yeah, but like, there is something, that just that emotional release, but I didn't realize that there was a literal painkiller that came with yeah, it. Yeah, it kind of makes sense because I'm like, this feels weird. Like, what's this euphoric, yeah, yeah. dulling sense yeah. that I have? There's an area of your brain that specifically deals with your emotions. This is called the limbic system, specifically the hypothalamus, which we've talked about before. I think mm-hmm. with regard to memories, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So this is hardwired into your automonic? Autonomic, sorry. This is hardwired to your autonomic nervous system, which via a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, <laughs> it stimulates tear production. Okay. Your crying can even be divided into spatial and temporal types of cries. So the spatial is when you cry over wanting to be somewhere like, I want to go home. Okay. Like camp sucks. Right. I want to be home. But then there's also temporal tears, which is about looking into the past or the future that elicits an emotion. So that's the so, nostalgia tears. And that's like the difference where like we've talked about the way memory is stored in the brain and how locations and spaces are different from times and you know the objects, but that's like a totally different thing than knowing the space. What I don't know is because I know that like memories have to do with different parts of the brain like this is all still part of the same system but it just makes me think and I I guess I should have looked into it deeper but it's like it makes me think that it's like the chemical makeup of the tear is different based on if you're looking at a picture from 10 years ago and you're like I love nostalgia versus you know and that's what's so fucking crazy one study even suggested that there's an evolutionary role of crying as a means of displaying vulnerability or submission to an ensuing attacker makes sense a little bit of like shame them into being like oh you don't need to kill me Pearl, yeah. So, you know, like, just think about what happens when you cry. It's like your heart rate increases, you sweat, your breathing slows, you get a lump in your throat, which is known as the globus sensation. Yeah, why does that happen? I I don't know. It's just basically just as a result of your sympathetic nervous system or your fight or flight system activating in response to any kind of tear producing event. It feels to me like my Adam's apple is like too high. Yeah. I don't know, and I'm like, I'm like, why is it doing that? What's funny is like, I've completely surpassed any of the lump and throat because I'm oh, like, yeah. I'm not trying to hold anything back, <laughs> motherfucker. Like, there was a time when I'd be like, I'm going to 
stay composed. Yeah. And then it's like, no, I can I can talk so much freer when it's like, just yeah. let them flow. Let it happen. Yeah, but that, yeah, the lump in the throat is the globus sensation. Mm. Now, babies use crying more than just a means of emotional expression, but as a form of communication because they mm-hmm. don't speak language. They don't have so, the words yet. Yeah, they've got their like basic cry, their angry cry, and their pain cry. I feel like most parents know that. You can just I'm sure very quickly you get, yeah. you're like, I know what, what yeah. my child wants. Distressed mm-hmm. is happening yeah. right now. <laughs> This is my favorite part of this whole article that I read. Tears are a positive representation of who we are. It demonstrates not only our deep emotional connections with our world, past, present, and future, but allows us to visibly celebrate that fact. They are also scientifically proven to make you feel better. So fuck that shit and go on and wear your tears with pride. And that's how I feel. And that's how I felt. Like, I don't feel any shame about it, but I think, you know, any shame that specifically I think the the male gender feel is yeah. it's all societal because like yeah. baby boys cry. You reach a point where someone says you're not supposed to cry anymore. But I'm right. like, no wonder there's so many angsty, like suicidal dudes. Because yeah. frankly, like if you not only are feeling all of this, but have no way right. of letting it out because the natural way that human beings are supposed to let that shit out is closed off to you. Yeah. No wonder there's like all these, the rage, the right. rage, the wars know? over the centuries. Yeah. Yeah. Of just like, if you just fucking cried and, you know. I don't know why showing a little bit of vulnerability, it, well, I guess it is it is literally a, a sign of weakness. Yeah. And so that's what it is. is like, you can never show a sign of weakness. Yeah. But it's like, showing signs of weakness can be a sign of strength. Oh, man. I like that. My fucking Twitter, like, cover photo or whatever for the last five years has been vulnerability is the cornerstone of confidence. Oh, my God. And that's, that's exactly great. how I feel because, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the figures here was that it's, you know, women cry at least 50 times a year and men mm-hmm. it's like 10. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't think that's just because, like, I have... Okay, I have fully accepted that there are chemical differences between men and women. I'm right. not trying to fight with that. Right. But the notion that like men don't feel like they want to cry is just preposterous to me. I mean, and I'm not saying like in order to be like a real man, you have to cry your eyes out. Like right. there's different ways of I showing am. that. But I, I do think that it's like being raised by an old, old man who like, I don't believe I've ever seen cry in my mm-hmm. entire life. Mm-hmm. He always, if he saw me cry, would be like, I got to fix something. And I'm like, right. this I am fixing it. Right. Me crying right now is fixing my pain. Right. That, like, my body is letting me get it out. It's like that great scene in the movie Inside Out where oh, there's I a, just rewatched it. so goddamn good. Was it Boingo Boingo? Was it, what's his it's name? It's not Oingo Boingo. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's Bing, Bing Bong? Bing Bong. Yeah. Bing Bong's super sad and Joy is doing everything she can to be like, come on, we get yeah. excited. And, he, and it's just like all he needs is a period of time where he feels the sadness so that he can then be happy again. Right. Well, the, yeah, the whole premise of the movie is that the little girl is right. going through shit and Joy is so like hell bent on making it better that right. and like they're trying to get rid of sadness the whole time. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, it's such a human thing. And also, like, I like this connection of why do you cry or like, why do you feel emotional if you look at something in the past or you get nostalgia? It's like that to me, we might know very little about what actually is happening in the human brain. Mm-hmm. But I'm like that. That's the humanity to me. Like the Definitely. fact that we are capable of feeling those things is like, especially in these days, yeah. I need to be reminded that people feel things. I know. It's the whole like the, the greatest thing that came with us in evolution, I think, is empathy. Yeah. And any sign that we still have it or that it's like active in yeah. our society, it, it brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Know what I mean? I know that sounds facetious, but it's <laughs> no, so but true. It really do- like, yeah, this whole uh, the rest of this episode is going to be a lot of stuff where I'm going to sound like I'm like up my own ass and facetious and stuff, but I'm like just being absolutely genuine. Yeah, just bear with us, y'all. With We're us. going through it. <laughs> 
So, way back in the first episode of our show, oh. which I actually listened to last night, and wow, have we come a long way. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> like, oh it wasn't God. even a show. Like, we didn't have the segments, we didn't yeah. have the theme song, we didn't have trailers, we didn't have anything. We were just two kids figuring it out. Yeah. And we did. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Anyway. So in the first episode of our show, we talked about the Turing test, which is named for Alan Turing, a man created with the invention of the computer and was a master code breaker in World War II. The Turing test was intended to see if a computer can simulate a person so well that a real person couldn't tell the difference. Right. We did this because of Ex Machina was the first episode. Exactly. The original Turing test was like a text-based game where you would ask a computer questions via text and then see if you could tell whether the response was a real person or a computer. Right. These days, we think of it like in Ex Machina as like, not just can you tell over text, but can you tell over the phone and eventually can you tell in person whether or not somebody else is a robot? What's the latest thing where the voices sound like superhuman? Well, that was what I was about to say is a couple of months ago, Google debuted a new technology called Duplex, which will make mundane phone calls on your behalf, like to make appointments and shit like that. The voice is so unnervingly good, it's crazy, and because that's because of all the detailed ums and uhs and natural pauses that we don't even think about. Here's what I, I'm sorry to just interrupt here, mm-hmm. like, we go out of our way to edit out the stupid ums in our say. show, <laughs> and yet the way that they convince us that they're human is by being like, uh, um, um, uh, and whereas yeah. I'm like, you annoying motherfucker. Exactly, yeah. I don't know if anybody listening noticed, but around episode 10, you stopped hearing us ever say um or uh. Because everybody sounds like a dickhead when they say right, um. Right, it just it flows better without it. Anyway, I don't know if you've noticed, but like, there's almost no ums or uhs except for in this episode, except for the times where we said Sometimes people say um Um, and uh. Yeah, (laughs) purposeful. Anyway, a lot of people see this as passing an auditory Turing test because when Duplex calls somebody, unless they're specifically told that it's a robot on the call, they can't tell the difference. We're still way in the uncanny valley when it comes to visuals, but just five years ago, we were in that same valley when it came to voice. It's true. And at some point, it's all going to come together and make a person-like thing that is indistinguishable from a real person. Mm -hmm. And this brings me back to the concept that I talked about in our very first episode, which is the idea of the Chinese room. Let's see if I can do a better job of explaining this this time around. (laughs) Last time, I didn't do great. So imagine you're in a blank room. There's a slot on one wall and a slot on the opposite wall and a bunch of binders full of instructions. A piece of paper comes through the first slot with a Chinese symbol on it. Looking through the binders, you see that if this specific symbol comes in, you're supposed to grab a corresponding word or letter to put out the second slot. Mm -hmm. So you get one meaningless to you Chinese word in, Mm -hmm. correspond it to another Chinese word that is also meaningless to you, and you put that out the other slot. Mm -hmm. To somebody who's outside the room, it might look like you're speaking Chinese. Right. To them, they input a question in Chinese, and the person inside the room answers that question accurately, also in Chinese. But you're just finding patterns. Exactly. To you, inside the room, you're just corresponding meaningless symbols to other meaningless symbols, and you have no understanding of what you're actually saying. Yeah. This is an illustration of what's going on inside a machine's brain. I think when we did this in Ex Machina, I referred to that like little block that the kids use that they put the shapes into. Oh, yeah. It was like putting, I remember being like, yeah, it's finding patterns. Kids don't know anything, but they know shapes. They know shapes. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't understand the question or the answer, but it does understand the input and knows what the correct output should be. 
But beyond checking the instruction binders to make sure that you put out the right thing, you don't understand jack shit about what's being said. Right, right, sure. So to go all the way back to a question we raised then, does it matter to us if these robots actually feel anything? Mm-hmm. Or is them acting like people good enough for us to assign emotion to them and care about them as much as any real person? I think that before I was like, no, I, I guess I don't care about that. But I'm right. like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. I interact with enough people in my life that seem like they're dead behind the eyes. Mm, right, yeah. <laughs> and they just operate and they just find the patterns and they do the thing. And I'm not fulfilled by that. Right. So like, yes, if I have a robot that it you know has a task, that's fine. But like, yeah, there's a there's an issue for me. I would never be able to connect to a robot if I knew that it's like, you're not really connecting with me. This was a really interesting element of listening over that first episode yeah. where I'm like, I have grown and changed in my understanding of these things and my philosophy about them a lot over the course of this show. Mm-hmm. And I used to think that it didn't matter and that because human beings are electrical impulses in the same kind of way, yeah. there is no difference. But I can't help but feel now that there is a difference. Of course. Oh, yeah. Ooh, interesting. (laughs) Like, it does matter if I know that this person is thinking about it like the Chinese room and they aren't actually giving me an answer, but are giving me a pre-programmed understanding of an answer. And then that's what I'm saying is like, when I really analyze, I'm like, there's enough human beings that operate like robots where they're just like going through the motions and they're just kind of giving the talking points of things Mm -hmm. that they've... And to me, I'm like, this is who are you? Like, do you actually feel... So, again, I guess it depends on what the goal is, right? If you're Mm. supposed to have these robots that are sort of like Baymax or like, you know, that they're like nurse robots or somebody that's supposed to make you feel like they're your friend, Mm. that would be problematic for me because it would feel like a phony friendship. Well, it's also like our perception through the electrical impulses is real and it creates an actual feeling of pain that is real to us. But... To a robot, it's the same way that Schwarzenegger is like, why do you feel pain? Why do you cry? It's not going to feel it, but it will be able to act as though a human being would if a human being had felt it, but they really aren't. I think he said it the best when he said, I know now why you cry, but I'll never be able to cry myself. Right. And that was the reason he needed to be destroyed. Yeah. and (laughs) Because he's not a human. Yeah, man. I I think, well, because I think what's been interesting about the show is like, We have both acknowledged that the meaning that we ascribe to things is perhaps overstated in the sense that like our brains are just electrical impulses. Right. But we have also really embraced the freedom within that or like we've we've embraced what's special about that. Like we can accept that. Yes, we're just synapses firing. But for whatever reason, this is what's real to us. Right. And I and that's that's enough for me. And I don't need to justify like why it's okay for somebody who like doesn't actually get me. But like knows what I like to buy at the store or whatever. Right. Like, that's not enough for me. Yeah. And it's the, I think it's it's like a symptom of just authenticity that human beings are trying to find at all times. Right. And I can't imagine that we would get to a place where a robot would be doing things for its own emotional purposes when interacting with you. Right. So every interaction that you have with the robot is the robot trying to manipulate you into feeling better or feeling a certain way that the programmers wanted you to feel. Totally. And it's not... 
its own life. And I think it also says a lot about us. Like it says a lot about the person because a lot of people do want substance. They want like a real relationship. Nobody wants to just have somebody like them because they have a lot of power and money or whatever. Right. But then there's a hell of a lot of people that don't give a fuck. As long right. as you're giving me the attention, they don't give a shit if the robot cares about you or not. They only care about if you fold their clothes or yeah. whatever. You know what I mean? And so I think for us, we've definitely come to a point where we both, I don't know. I, I think it's in a kind of healthy place. It's like a, it's a patient acceptance, which right. is what I practice a lot in my yoga. It's like patiently accepting that AI and just fucking robot people are going to be a thing and that's okay mm-hmm. and I don't have to be so emotionally wrapped up in it. But I also acknowledge like a robot is never going to be a human being. Right. I truly believe that. I didn't think that when we started this show yeah. and something's changed in me over this last two years. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't think that a robot will be a human being. Yeah. I know you were like such a like hardcore like staunch futurist when we started. Well, I was, really... and not to say that you're not or that you don't still agree with some some tenets, but yeah. Well, I just saw ourselves more as robots than I see us now. Yeah. I think the the neuroplasticity of the brain and like all the <laughs> even this tear fiasco that right. I just looked into, like the chemical makeup of emotion is like insane and that's something that I don't think a robot can ever yeah and I want to talk more about this in a minute when we get into like our final thoughts about this show but like the fact is we don't know what consciousness is and until we know what consciousness is we aren't going to be able to say whether a robot is conscious hell yeah I agree we know that we are yeah that's that because we think (laughs) therefore we are fuck you (laughs) science All right. So we know that there's no fate but what you make. That is, we do know that. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually how I feel. But I at least was like, what's the deal with fate? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, what is like the earliest thinkings about fate? Yeah, well, you know, as with many things, it comes from Greek mythology. Oh, of course. So there's something called the, oh, oh, how am I going to pronounce this? It's spelled M-O-I-R-A-I, Moirai. 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 Okay. Ah. They were the three goddesses of fate. Yeah. I've heard of the fates. Yeah, the fates, exactly. Yeah. I always say that like in a very like jerk myself off way, like <laughs> the fates have a lie, right. but I never knew. These three fates. Yeah, exactly. The, the name Warai or whatever means parts, shares, or allotted portions. Hmm. But of course, these three fates are described as ugly old women that are stern and inflexible. Okay, I thought I, thought I had somewhere in my brain that they were like old witches, like yeah. the, the hags in double, double toil and yeah, trouble. Yeah, totally. You know the hags are always trying to get you down. Yeah. They're anyway. always telling you what your life is going to be. So you'll love this. The first of the hags is Clotho. She is known as the spinner. Okay. The spinner. spinner. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's an inside joke that we're not going to explain right now, didn't are we? we? Did we explain it back in we, the thinner episode? Oh, yeah. If you, if you listen to the episode that we did about thinner, we mentioned that the reason that we did that episode is because sometimes during editing, my computer would hang up and we would get that spinner, yeah. the spinning color wheel, yeah. and we would always like look at the computer and go, spinner. And we're both doing the thinner yeah, the hand thinner movement. Hand thing where the witch curses him. You've got to know that movie backwards forwards. Yeah. Anyway, so there's Clotho the spinner Spin. and she spun the thread of life and she is depicted as carrying a spindle or a roll of thread or whatever. Okay. Then there's Lachesis who is the apportioner of lots and she carried a staff with which she points to the horoscope on a globe. And finally there's Atropos. She's referred to as she who cannot be turned. She carries a scroll, a wax tablet, a sundial, a pair of scales, whatever, cutting instrument. 
At other times, the three were just shown with scepters and crowns and whatever. They're just dominion, dominion, Mm. these fates. (laughs) But essentially what they mean is that at the birth of each man, the fates appeared spinning, measuring, and cutting the thread of life. Okay. Because that's how that works. So the thread is life. That's right. Okay, okay. Whatever, whoever's got the cutter, whoever's got just the thread itself, (laughs) somebody's got a wax tablet, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's been sewing something, there's crochet, who knows. The tapestry of life. Yeah. The Morai directed fate, and they watched that the fate assigned to every being by eternal laws might take its course without obstruction. Even Zeus, as well as the other gods and man, had to submit to these fates or whatever. So the fates did not abruptly interfere fear in human affairs, but they availed themselves of intermediate causes, and they determined the lot of mortals, not absolutely, but only conditionally. So it's like the idea of fate, but then also this idea of like, God helps those who help themselves, I think kind of wrapped up into it. So it's like, man doesn't have the freedom to like go away from fate, but then he kind of somehow has... Oh, wait, I don't know. <laughs> to me, this is like a way of human beings explaining that like bad things happen to good people right, and good things right. happen to bad people. Uh-huh. And like there clearly is no fate, but you're going to make it make sense. Right, right. So the reason why I brought this up and that was just like, a you know, taking a look at the history of it. But the, the whole concept of fate to me is so contrived and ridiculous. Right. And yeah, I kind of wanted to just have like a discussion about that. Well, my feeling about fate in general is that it does exist literally, but not in a way that matters to us. Okay. This is very kind of similar to, like, does it matter that we're living in a simulation? I see. No. Because we create the world that we live in, and we create the fate. It's no fate, but what we make. Right. (laughs) But I think that the reality is, if you get down to it, that we are a product of the specific way in which hydrogen atoms came together and formed. I see what you're saying. And so I do think that it's possible, as we've talked about before with the idea of level one parallel universes, that if you go far enough in the universe, particles have arranged in the exact same way as they have here on Earth, and that wound up causing people to exist and making the same choices. And so I think it's determined by whatever happened to the Big Bang. Mm And whatever set the entire universe in motion is going to play out as it's going to play out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now I understand what you're saying. Like, because there's part of me that at first feels like, I mean, this is a a thing that human beings created to keep people in line and to be Mm. like, this is what you are set out to do. It's sort of similar to like the caste system that we were talking about. We're like, this is the lot in your life. There's no straying from that necessarily. And yet I at least understand too because like we're in America, we have such a like individualistic mm-hmm. idea of of the world that I also think is wrong. Mm-hmm. There's got to be some like healthy mix, right? Where it's not necessarily that you're like I have control over every single thing that happens in my life. Because right. let's face it, you do not. Right. But this assumption that like you're you are this way now, this is what you're supposed to be. That I think is just a way to stop people in their tracks. That is a type of fate I don't think exists. Right. Like, and I think that some people will take it to the extreme and say, oh, if all we are is the product of particles that have arranged in this way and I'm going to make the choices no matter what I'm going to make, then why am I held responsible for murdering somebody? Right. Okay, yeah. And I think that that's a wrong-headed way of thinking about it because it doesn't matter that we are fated to do what we have to do in the same way that it doesn't matter that we're living in a simulation, you still have to live your life as though you're in control of it. Right. 
Because it is your choice to kill somebody or not. Yeah. And to blame it on the nature of the Big Bang is not a way that you can practically live. Well, I mean, it's especially like what I was saying before. It's it's finding that freedom within that structure. Like, it's taken a lot for me over the past five years to acknowledge that I'm not the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. And like, it's weird when I'm like, but... But, 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 and then I realized right. like, oh yeah, it's actually like, there's, there's a freedom to know mm-hmm. that you're not the center of the fucking universe. And like, you might as well make the choices that you have. Right. You're, you weren't preordained by God mm-hmm. to be the leader of the who's it's and what's it's. It's like, you're creating all of the importance around you. And I'm, that's kind of why I wanted to bring up this segment. Cause I yeah. know we want to have our final thoughts. And that was one of the biggest things of like, you know, somebody who maybe at one point in my life, there you know, there are a lot of rules and regulations, mm-hmm. but that's all based on societal constraints. That's all based on man-made shit. Yeah. And like, I can both appreciate that and also not be held down by that, but at least appreciate that these were put in place in order for like societies to exist and whatever. Yeah. Like, we're all just trying to get through it and have it make sense. Yeah. But I definitely do not believe in fate. <laughs> in right. fate in, in the sense that they're talking about it. Like, this is what you are meant to do and you're not meant to do anything else. Well, I feel like all these ideas, Ten Commandments, fates, all these things are trying to get people to be better people. Yeah. The only commandment that matters to me mm-hmm. is helping others and trying to make other people's lives better. Yeah. And I think that, like, that as a number one basis to build all of our societal choices off of would be the correct thing going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is about being able to see through or like sift through some of the bullshit because you're like, yeah, I know that in the grand scheme of the world, like human beings have been alive for just a blink of of an eye. Right, right, right. But we're talking about like a lot of years, hundreds of Mm -hmm. years of people's weird complexes and shit getting like written into the code of society or whatever. And I think what's been interesting about this show is being able to like not only understand like the historical context which these ideas came about, but then also being able to see through like some of the truth or like where you can make it work, but also Mm -hmm. acknowledge the way where there was just like straight up exploitation and manipulation. Like to me, the idea of of fate in the way that we conceive of it now Mm -hmm. seems pretty obviously a way to keep people in line. Yeah. Religion, the way that we look at it now, seems like an obvious way to keep people in line in a lot of ways. But it also just gives people purpose where they feel like, oh, I was meant to do this. I know. And I was meant to change the world and affect others in this specific way. That's why it's a really like successful way of manipulating people, honestly, because that's, that's all it is, right? It's like, once human beings feel like they have a purpose, that's right. something that I think can be manipulated every which way. And so, like, just on a human level, what's been fascinating for me is, like, I was easily triggered. Mm-hmm. There's some things that still easily trigger me, but mm-hmm. I'm still very, like, no, this is right and wrong. Right. And what's been cool is being, like, your sense of right and wrong is completely based on the world in which you live, mm-hmm. the time of which you live. Mm-hmm. Because even where you live now... 60 years ago, you probably wouldn't agree with this. So it's at least owning up to my generation. It's owning up to who I am in this crazy mixed up world. But I also think that, fuck, if if more people thought this way, or at least like challenge themselves to be like, man, am I living in a simulation? Like there's at least the exercise of, of being able to think outside the box in a way. Yeah. Well, I was saying earlier that I think that fate is real in terms of the universe and that we don't really have control over our choices. But it's possible that I'm totally wrong about that. Yeah. And that humanity, or not humanity, but life, is this unique thing within the universe that is the first thing to take control over what happens next. Which I think, if you really push me, is based in the way that our brains were built up based on that same grouping of hydrogen atoms and stuff like that. But maybe I'm wrong. 
and maybe the one thing that's unique about this universe is life and that it can make those choices and therefore fate doesn't really exist. It's also the acknowledgement of like your personal destiny has so much to do with the world around you. Right, like if anything right. this show has taught me, it's like how, you know, as, as often as I've felt like a lone wolf of sorts, it's like you're absolutely involved in the world. Right. Like every way of how you feel about yourself is based on the world as it's been <laughs> presented to you. And so... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's my thing is I don't leave the show being like, you know, nothing matters and everything you think is fucking lame or whatever. It's that it's the richness of that understanding that actually makes me approach life in a more rich way, frankly, like it's more complex. I don't I don't write people off in the same way that I used to write people off. It's a lot easier for me to see like, fuck, well, I've been conditioned to think a certain thing. I'm all I am is synapses and whatever. Like, do I really have the answers? Do you have the answers? Fuck you. Like, you don't know. Did you have any favorite lines? Besides no fate but what we make? (laughs) Yeah. I liked, if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, if yeah. that was in the like the just driving at the very end, it's like road. now I don't know what the fates hold yeah. in the middle of the road. Yeah, dude, you're like going across the lines pretty yeah. hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stop Not- swerving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wrote down, you can't just go around killing people. Why? <laughs> and I just love that because it's be like, told. well, yeah. that's the thing is that these robots that we are creating, and this again goes back to our first episode where we were talking about like chatbots that had been ruined and become like oh, super yeah. bigoted because of Total us, dicks. and like they're learning off of humanity, and it's like. If we don't teach these things right and wrong, we're fucked. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, somewhat similarly is the, we're not going to make it, are we? Right. Which is, you know, John Connor looking out at the little kids and as they're playing with each other with guns and being like, make, 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 And make. I wrote down the response to that, actually, oh. which is, it's in your nature to kill each other. I know, I know. And that, to me, I think is... What's the craziest? Because we talk about this a lot, where it's like we've gotten to that point in human evolution, where right. like we've worked past some of the like viral issues or whatever, mm-hmm. and now we have not only just fucking suicide and like mental disorder, but then war and mm-hmm. you know hatred and bigotry and whatever, and that's gonna be the the thing. I mean, like, what we were saying before was like, what if it was worked into a robot's plan mm-hmm. or whatever that they had to save the United the human beings. I always say the mm-hmm. United States, but right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they had to save human beings by killing like, a bunch of human beings right. to kind of start. It's like, scratch. oh, this that's is weird. unsustainable on this planet. Yeah. We got to at least kill a couple of million or a couple of billion. I know. You know, it could totally happen and with it, these things. And part of me feels like we're we're so far gone that way. But then again, that's probably why I chose the, like, if even a Terminator can learn the value of human life. Like, I don't feel like it takes you that long of watching those heartwarming videos that I was talking about earlier before you're like, oh, humanity is yeah. worth something. <laughs> and an algorithm that goes, this video should be promoted because it will emotionally target this person is not an algorithm that's going to go, aw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I'm just kidding. This was an interesting tidbit. The date of the fictional Judgment Day, August 29th, 1997, mm-hmm. is the anniversary of the Soviet Union's first detonation of an atomic bomb in 1949. Oh, that's interesting. Matt, Matt, 
like, because John Connor's like, we're not at war with Russia. Like, they're not our enemies anymore. And the Terminator's like, they knew that if we sent our missiles to them, they would destroy us over here. And so the robots were like, why don't we let the humans kill each other? Well, that's a crazy side note, too, because it's like, remember, we watched Red Dawn together and we're just like, this is so funny and so dated because, you know, the days when the Soviets, you know, the Russians and the United States were going against each other. Back when they had, like, some kind of conflict between those two countries. (laughs) It really felt like yeah. so another world but back when Mitt Romney was like Russia's our biggest enemy I in know, 2012 and, like, and we were like goofball. Mitt you're never gonna be president because you on. don't understand yeah come on Mitt Russia is fine your name is Mitt your name is Mitt anyway that's that <laughs> yeah well before we go before we sign off on this whole adventure <laughs> I want to talk about some stuff that we've learned over the course of the show some themes that we've hit over and over again that have stuck out in my mind yeah besides what we've already discussed with the fate and the yeah well AI it's gonna kind of be related to some of those things first of all no new technology is inherently good or evil Mm -hmm. each one is effectively a tool and a hammer could be used to build stuff or used to murder somebody yeah social media can either be used to like make certain things viral that Mm -hmm. need to be thought about or it can turn everybody into like evil (laughs) motherfuckers right well i didn't realize too with all of that i i always saw the connectivity that was coming Mm -hmm. and we started this show four weeks before donald trump was elected president and i at the time certainly did not see how we were able to insulate ourselves within the world of being more open to each other. Yep. So each new tool that we create is more powerful. So instead of a hammer taking years to build something or killing only one person, we have these new things that can build a house in a day or also kill hundreds in a minute. Mm -hmm. And this is all simply to say... The invention isn't the problem. And we're not going to stop the invention. We've learned that, like, that seems to be a futile thing to even try. Yeah. Again, like I was saying, the free flow of data, it's like it's going to happen whether Mm -hmm. you like it or not. And that's a lot of people are like, why are we building these things? And the answer is, like, don't even ask that question. Yeah. It's the question of how do we use them? Yeah. The problem with that, though, is that humanity is so big and sprawling, we can't guarantee that there isn't going to be some evil person who uses it wrong. And I don't know if there's a solution to this problem other than being as aware as possible that every new thing has a higher potential than before for both good and bad. Yeah, man. I mean, it's at such a different scale than I think mm-hmm. you know humanity has ever dealt with, which is why you know people are throwing their hands up in the air like, "What the fuck?" Right. But like, when you think about it, um, and again, I'm going to use the social media example because a, a lot, a lot of people look at it as being something that victimizes people, like which I, I agree with to a certain degree when it comes mm-hmm. to like business models that are meant to like harvest your data and all that stuff. Like we can we can have all of those discussions, but specifically when it comes to like bringing out the worst in people, mm-hmm. of bringing you to the point where you're going to like turn into a crazy person on Mm -hmm. Facebook and start typing to people frantically like that's you man like that the technology brought that out of you but that's you to me I feel like I kind of look at social media or that kind of technology in the same way I look at a drug Mm -hmm. in the sense where it's like it's not necessarily like the drug that's making you there's like a combination you're a part of the drug you're a part of it you're a part of it right so and that to me is what we're kind of dealing with is like this is the first time that we've really had this at this scale kind of shit Well, because it's now moved to a different scale where i think about the nuclear bomb as being like oh we never had weapons on this scale yeah but now the weapons have not become more destructive they become more insidious yeah more insidious because they're more brain connected they're more you know we're talking about all these like weird things where it's like your mm -hmm. body has these ways of responding to to Mm -hmm. stimuli and so 
social media, I think you're not necessarily throwing bombs at each other, right. but you're throwing like thought bombs at each thought other. Thought bombs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you're creating hate, which is an energy, mm-hmm. whether you like it or not. Right. And that can lead to destruction. And that's new. That is not fucking Terminator style mm-hmm. machine Holocaust. This is like us being a victim of our own undoing. It's and crazy. up until literally two years ago, around when we started this show, all I thought about social media was that the good outweighs the bad right. and that it will become the savior of humanity, not the destruction of it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. now I'm way less sure about that. Oh, yeah. But, you know, those, those are the things that change over two years. <laughs> Something totally else that I feel like we keep learning over and over again is that Animals seem to be way smarter and more feeling than we ever give them credit for. Right, right. We didn't have any animals in this episode, but definitely we've come up with that. It's happened over and over again. Like, And I don't expect that trend of understanding to change anytime soon. Like, We should be more aware that we share so much in common with every living thing on this planet and stop thinking that we're special or different in any way. If you care about the little guy in humanity, why not also care about the little animals? Oh, yeah, man. Because we've, we've also talked about like the the fake meat shit where it's right, like there's yeah, going yeah, to come yeah. a time where like future humans look back and are like, you actually fucking ate, ate piggies? Like what the things? fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. But definitely like in terms of especially the communication factor, it's like mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that I take from this show is just realizing how human centric we are and we really... There's like an egotism to assuming that I would say that we are the most complex in the sense that we can fucking build cities and all right, of that right. kind of shit. But we act like we're just the rule in the roost right. and it's not working. And we're clearly seeing that the world is kind of fighting back against us well, too. Like nature is not. I was going to say earlier, like we've all sectioned off into these groups, which are usually denoted by country or race or something like that. And right. then we fight each other, even though we're the same species. And you got to think that like, maybe it won't be until aliens come down that we band together and realize all humans are the same. Right. And that like, there aren't enough differences between us to be fighting each other. We, but we always feel like the need to fight. Right. I mean, it's very Game of Thronesy in that mm-hmm. way, where it's just sort of like, y'all are cutting each other's heads off right. and stuff until the ice people come right. in. The- and that's sort of how I feel, too, where it's like, I- and I don't know on an evolutionary level, like, this desperate need to fight. Right. Like, especially when it's not necessary anymore, right. you know? But not only do I hope that we can eventually get to a point where all humanity sees itself as like, we should protect humans, but maybe we'll get to a place of we're similar enough to everything else on Earth that we want to protect all of Earth. Yeah, that, that's how I feel. Because yeah. I, I mean, again, we try to talk about things in the context of just like the globe and the world and humans mm-hmm. in general, but like we're Americans through and through. Right, like, right. I realize too, this idea of kind of quote unquote American exceptionalism Mm-mm. has permeated a lot of ways where it's like, yeah, I don't I don't think that we should feel so high and mighty against every animal or that, you know, the biggest insult is to refer to somebody as, as an animal because I'm like, we're all part of the same fucking thing. Right. We're all cousins. Just because we have a slightly different DNA doesn't mean we don't have an insane amount in common yeah. and that, you know, if you care about a child in a fucked up situation being innocent but also, like, persecuted, yeah. then why wouldn't you also care about other animals and and weren't you talking about where it was like the difference, Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying like the difference between us and apes is like so Less, small. It's like 1% of our DNA. And yeah. so, the, you know, he wonders whether 1% of our DNA in the other direction, would these aliens or whatever beings they are look at us the way we look at chimps? And it's like, well, maybe what if we changed the way we looked at chimps? Yeah. And started looking at everything as being more human and worthy of life. What if everything wasn't a fucking hierarchy? Right. And that's where like, like this is a naive thought. 
but maybe these super aliens or whatever they are that are like way more intelligent than us have figured that out. Yeah. And don't want to destroy us just because and don't look at us as an anthill, but do look at us as the way we should look at an anthill. Yeah. And be like, that is its own ecosystem that deserves to live. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see about that. <laughs> the next thing, I wanted to make sure that we drove home how much we know jack shit about the human brain. Yes, yes. Like, we've come a long way from lobotomies, but only, like, 50 years. Yeah. And I feel like even more than space exploration and physics and quantum physics, we know right now how little we know about the brain. Mm -hmm. I think we were talking about it in one of the first episodes, I think in relation to whether or not AI is distinguishable from a human in any actual way Mm -hmm. that we haven't defined consciousness and i hope we wind up learning a lot more over the next hundred years about consciousness and what a complicated unknown element like the brain is at the center of everything that we do and we feel often when talking about all these technologies that we create that we know so much and yet we barely know ourselves well and again when you talk about how like our perception is our reality it's really hard to know what is truly truly real when our reality is based on what our brains tell <laughs> right. us right yeah that's yeah, totally true definitely but yeah like what is consciousness i hope we have an answer to that question sometime soon yeah maybe in our lifetime maybe not so another major theme that we've hit over and over again is that humans are fundamentally contradictory mm-hmm. for every good there is bad and within every bad there is good It's our constant struggle to fight against the parts of ourselves that came along during our evolution that we don't want to keep, but still feel deeply. Yes. Like, we're trying to decide now which parts of our nature are good that we want to cultivate and which parts of our nature are bad that we want to stop. Mm -hmm. And I think we're capable of doing it. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think about how hard it is to get my dog to not jump up on people. (laughs) And not like freak out all the time because it's so in her nature to be excited, but it's super easy to get the same dog who's bred for bird hunting to chase flies around the house, which are flying things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's easy to cultivate something that's already in her nature, but it's super hard to suppress the other things that are embedded in her instincts. Gotcha. And so we're the same way where it's just, it's super easy to be like, okay, we already want to survive. Mm -hmm. That's an easy thing to cultivate and continue. But the type of survival where we're surviving at all costs, it takes over and causes selfish acts. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's a way to stop the selfish element of it, but keep the survival element. Yeah, I mean, I with something like this, I think it's, I mean, it's one of those that you can't look at it in like an absolute, right? Because like yeah, that's totally. what's what's awesome about evolution, but mm-hmm. also terrible about evolution is mm-hmm. the variety. Like, there's a bunch of different people that are either never going to get there, or maybe they get there at different speeds. But mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of society, you would like to think that we'll continue to progress to get to that point right. where maybe we can eradicate some of those basic functions. Well, that's the thing where I think one of the biggest struggles of human life that's at like the center of it is to resolve some of those internal contradictions and through that process become what we see at least as better people. Yeah. Yeah, I would hope for that. It's it's all about like there's <laughs> all these instincts that we have, some of which we are now realizing are bad, some right. of which we know are good. Well, and some people like double down on or they lean mm-hmm. into, they'll be right. like, I'm just being an animal like I am, whatever. Exactly. But it's, you know, it's basically that that struggle between our just like evolutionary kind of animal bodies and this heightened intellect and this brain that no other animal on the planet has. Right. 
And that brings me to my final thing, which is that we live in a super interesting time <laughs> where we finally know how little we know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I imagine hundreds of years ago, there was no way of even getting a sense of how little you knew about the universe and how things worked. We now have a sense of how much knowledge might be out there. And while we're super proud of how far we've come, we still look out ahead and go, holy shit, there's so much work to do. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's an outcome of, like, early humans when it's really, like, you're just focused on survival. Like, there's a a certain amount of comfort that has to exist in order for you to really be, like, reflective and, like... Have you ever just thought, right. you know, like what we do on this show? Yeah. And I think what's interesting is for so long, it was humans just kind of surviving. They're mm-hmm. dealing with fucking polio or like whatever. Or what am I going to eat there. this afternoon? What am I going to eat? Like, how do I survive this this mm-hmm. summer? How do I survive mm-hmm. this winter or whatever? You know how little I spend every day thinking about what I'm going to eat? Yeah. Like five minutes exactly. total. So there is, you know, I want to at least acknowledge like the privilege that comes with being able to be like reflective of who we are and whatever. But I also at least appreciate the fact like, but we we are a lot fa- farther along than than our predecessors have right. been. And so yeah. we should be fucking thinking about this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's the thing where it's like, it's proof that we can move towards that ultimate goal. Right. And that like, maybe we'll one day achieve it, but that we're in the middle of this process. And that's why I find this time so interesting is that like, we know enough to know how much we know and don't know. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And as we've talked about many times, we are, or I am at least, a long-term optimist and a short-term pessimist. Mm -hmm. And I think that humanity is going to figure this shit out at some point. And you can call me naive, (laughs) but I think one day, generations from now, we will potentially be immortal, enlightened beings who have cultivated our own sense of empathy and altruism and left behind a lot of the selfishness and greed that helped us survive in our early days mm-hmm. to survive in the right way. Right. Or maybe that I mean that's a sign of, you know, survival of the fittest. It's maybe it's survival of the most empathic. It's definitely not sustainable for us to continue the way that humans have. No. Constantly creating war and mm-hmm. and fighting for borders and fighting for land and fighting for whatever is not going to help us. And I think what's interesting too is like, this is the first generation that's really dealt with the effects of climate change and Mm -hmm. like a real threat to humanity and like Mm -hmm. human life on the planet. And so I'm interested to see how that kind of develops. And like, maybe we will through the course of having to deal with a much bigger challenge than just like, I don't like my neighbor. Mm -hmm. We might see past a lot of this. Of course, it'd be nice to think like, yes, one day we'll do that. But I'm like, there's always going to be struggle. I think, I think human life is struggle like that's what it is yeah and we thrive on the struggle so we'll always create some kind of struggle but the struggle that we're in is lesser than the struggles that have come before and in the way that like they're different they're different i mean the only reason i say that is because i mean part of me doesn't want to even compare it because like yes in the realm of disease or whatever i can understand we're in a better place but like how many people are like, you know, back in my day, we didn't have these kinds of things that right. distract us from each other. Everybody's got their heads down. Everybody's on their phone or whatever. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's going to be somebody that's like, you've gained something, but you've also lost something. Right. And I think that is humanity. We're right. always going to gain something and we're going to lose something. Right. So maybe we'll be these like benevolent, enlightened, immortal motherfuckers. But what's going to be lost when you don't die. Yeah. If you don't die and you don't live like today's your last day because you don't have to, there's going to be something lost from that. And yeah. so it's not a judgment. It's just acknowledging like, I don't believe in utopia. I don't believe in like an ideal world because I just don't think that that's 
our lot in life. That's not our fate to bring it back to fate. But as we've said with the long-term optimism thing, it really is that if you look back 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years, there are more people living now today in comfort with the ability to think philosophically about whether altruism is a better move than, you know, taking away somebody's food because I need that food. Yeah, but there's also more people on the planet. And You're like right. there's You're also right. more wealth inequality mm-hmm. than there ever was You're before. Right. So right. Well, in that way, yeah, like it goes through these peaks and valleys and and but there it, there is like a long continuum and it I I want to remember that we've come so far and that it used to be that everybody was living the way that the worst of humanity lives today. Mm-hmm. Now, not everybody lives that way. Like now, lots of people are lucky enough to be born into the lives that you and I were born into. Certainly more people, both real numbers and percentage wise of the world, mm-hmm. is able to live that way than ever before. And I like that as we're on this road. <laughs> It sounds so privileged. You're totally right. You're absolutely right. It is totally privileged to be like, but like, that's the thing is to acknowledge the privilege and that there was a time where nobody was privileged in that way. Mm -hmm. And now there are some people who are privileged and we want to get to this place where everybody has that. Right. And that's the long term optimism that I don't share with you. That's the thing where it's like, yeah, I don't know for sure, but I want to believe Mm -hmm. and I have to believe in my heart that we as humanity will get there. Maybe, maybe when money doesn't mean anything anymore. That's the thing is like, we have to, (laughs) as I mentioned before, like you have to go through this horrifyingly terrible process in order to get to that promised land of universal income and all the different things that we talk about. these are systems that human beings created. And so like maybe we're capable of going past that. We were capable of going past that 60 fucking years ago and we haven't gone past it. Well, that's the thing where it's like back, you know, like thinking about like the early systems of like the code of Hammurabi. You know, we've talked about the, earliest days of law and we are so far beyond where that started like you can't not acknowledge that we're better off now than we were when an eye for an eye was the way the whole world worked yes right i'm just trying so hard to be like we'll figure it out yeah and i appreciate that and it's not me trying to be like let me shit on you but it's just like no i I think it's a naive point of naive and privileged together point of view but maybe it's correct but somebody (laughs) needs to have it nobody like nihilism doesn't help us like not like a complete like we're doomed kind of reality but Mm. yeah I mean, I, I I agree and disagree. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the nature of the world, and that's the nature of this show. Yep. And to fully wrap up here, to say that this has been fun and fulfilling would be a ridiculous understatement, <laughs> this entire show. I can't thank everyone who came along on this journey with us enough. I can't thank you, Joya, enough for always teaching me how to be a better person, oh. You're not just technology, you right. know, like how to be a better person, how to perform better, how to hone a sense of timing, like, and to open my mind to new ways of thinking in all seriousness. It may sound like I'm being a jackass or something. Not at all. Like, I thank you. I will always thank you. I love you. Aww. You guys can't see it, but I'm blushing, which is another uncontrollable thing that our brains make us do. But I feel the same way. This it's been it's been fucking awesome to change the way that I think, to change the way that I approach different topics, and also to be able to like really gain some confidence in being able to talk about it. Because yeah. like that's one of the things that I learned too is of course there's expertise and I appreciate the experts in the world, but you do not have to be an expert in order to think about stuff. No. And if anything, 
anything, we need more people thinking. Mm-hmm. Like really, really think about what you believe and what the world is that you've created in front of your eyes. And yeah, if yeah. you guys have any thoughts, definitely get in touch with us. We're not going into the abyss no. or whatever. It's just we're we're stopping this show and right. that's okay. And what's awesome is that we chose this because it was like, you know, what what's like a friendly, easy way to be able to do that? You yeah. might as well do it through the mediums of your favorite shows or right. TV shows or movies or whatever. So like if you go and see... Mission Impossible, right. and you're like, what's the deal you, with X, Y, or Z? All you—that's uh, all you have to do. That art is meant for you to question reality and yeah. to change your understanding of the world, and so take a little bit of proactive action yeah. in Be that proactive. kind of a way. Yeah, you know, I, I think it is an amazing thing. So, Jeff, what's your what's your Twitter handle? Oh, my <laughs> Twitter handle is at Jeffrey Ekman. I'm at It's a Joya Mia, I T S A J O Y A M I A on Instagram and Twitter. And I'll be around. Will, you will always find these episodes available if you ever search, oh, that's a thing. These will be available forever for everybody who wants to hear them. And if you ever want to get in touch with us, we'll still be available at oh, that's a thing.com or as we mentioned on our Twitter accounts. And so please do get in touch. We would love to hear from you. I know you and I are not going to stop watching movies and having conversations. <laughs> yeah. But. No, that's a lifelong skill that we've gained. Yeah. And so we love you guys, man. We love you all. And we thank you all. Joya, honestly, <laughs> genuinely, thank you. This has been extraordinary. I, have ne- I will never be the same. You're welcome. And I thank you. All right, guys. Goodbye. Ciao for now. <laughs> Bye. Science, magic and technology. Voodoo dolls and chants. Electricity will make a weird science. Fantasy and microchips shooting from the hip. Some